we didn't know how to do it. We didn't have a board of directors, and we had to figure it out on our own. So I called the front desk at Merrill Lynch, who was a customer of ours, and asked them to put them through to somebody who knew how to take us public, and they didn't know what I was talking about, and I had to ask three times. And finally, I got bounced around inside of Merrill Lynch until I got to somebody that could help me out. Welcome to Babson Bill, where we showcase Babson founders and entrepreneurs, people who have tried, failed, and tried again. They're the change makers, the disruptors, the hustlers, and the builders. These are their stories. This week on Babson Built, we're talking with Cabletron Systems founder Craig Benson about how he grew his first startup and eventually took it public. I really never did start my own business. I mean, I worked in a lot of different um, jobs as a young person. But I never started my own business, so this was the first business that I ever started. And it seems to have worked out well. It didn't do badly. <laughs> and um, what was your career trajectory before that? Was Were you on any like particular path? Were you thinking about being a doctor or something no, like I, that? So I went to Babson undergrad, and then I went to... Babson didn't let me come into grad school here because they had four years of me and decided that was enough. <laughs> so I ended up going to Syracuse University and getting my MBA. Um, and um, I started working in industry in uh, high tech in Boston um, after I got out of Syracuse. And then I went to a startup company, which was one of the first networking companies. And that's where the need for that particular cable came up. Well, and so... Uh, networking company was that? So it was a company by the name of Interland and it was one of the first three companies that was started to do computer networking which, tied, which was the precursor to the internet. Mm-hmm. So it tied computer stations together within a facility. Okay, and what was your job? Do you so remember your... I was the materials manager materials so I ran the stock room all the purchasing uh, made sure that the products were being built on the outside because um, we didn't do it internally and um, and then made sure that stuff got shipped to the customers. And and like when you were there, did you enjoy it or were you kind of, is that, or were you just completely not enjoying it? Is that how you sort of saw the opportunity? I, so when I worked in business, I worked at a pretty large tech company in Boston by the name of Teradyne um, and I worked for the small company. So I had two different sides of tech companies and I learned a lot from both companies, but most of what I learned was things I think we shouldn't do versus positives. I know it's that bizarre as that sounds. Um, I I and I incorporated that in my thinking when I did my own business to not make those mistakes. So um, a lot of our culture and a lot of what we did was based on the negatives that I got from working at those other companies versus the positives. So do you remember kind of the, like, did you have an epiphany where you suddenly realized that there was this market gap? Well, as I tell my students here at Babson, look, till you're in the game, you don't really know what's going on. So we started this business to satisfy a short-term need, hoped maybe we could make a few extra bucks on the side. Well, when we got in it, we started to see all these opportunities. And we started to be able to change the, the way the company was servicing customers, expand the product line, and get into different lines of business we weren't in that we wouldn't have seen had we not been in the business. So um, 
that was our, our epiphany. We were hands-on and we were getting our fingernails dirty, trying to satisfy these customer needs. And we kept seeing things changing and, and doors opening for opportunities. And like, so what was kind of one of the first uh, times where you thought, okay, you know, this wasn't initially what we were trying to do, but we can make a lot of money. Well, it was more that plus. So we started as a cable company, shipping products in 24 to 48 hours in a business that was very high priced and that people wouldn't ship custom lengths of cables and was very low demand and took six months to get the cable. So a big problem is you ship all these computer products into a good-sized company, call it uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield. And um, they forgot to order the cables, and they find out it's a six-month lead time to get a cable link they don't even need, and they can't even get it made to, to their specific requirements. Now, the market was so small that nobody was doing it, so we did it. But how long is that advantage going to last for? So if the market picks up and gets big enough, people are going to start to satisfy that need. So our need to adjust our products and services to get to a better place um, came a while into it. I mean, we were, I was working this part-time from 1983 to 1985. And then Bob and I had a very serious discussion where he said, look, either you got to come on full-time. And that was when it became real. What would have been the alternate? Well, the alternate is stay part-time, but Bob and and I, and especially Bob, felt like we needed to full, pay full-time attention to it because part-time wasn't cutting it anymore. At that time, uh, were you married? Or? I was married. My wife was seven months pregnant. Seven months pregnant. And um, I had a paying job, and this was going to be for less pay and no health insurance and the risk that my first child be born and be very expensive and not have health insurance was not a pleasant alter, but my wife encouraged me to do it anyway. Jeez. So, so how did you have that discussion? What, what did that look like? Just, I mean, everything in my life around this company for the entirety I was, the time I was associated with was fast. So we did everything in a day or two at most. Wow. So this was all real time, quick happening discussion it was one night at home, probably less than a half an hour of discussion total. She just said, go for it. Yeah, you should do it. <laughs> so how did Cabletron Systems, or I guess at the time... It uh, was Collingsworth up Collingsworth. until um, probably right after I started full-time. And then, okay. then, then it became Cabletron. And so, so how did you sort of change the game uh, for, oh, for everyone so in cables? We went from building cables to installing cables in facilities, very large facilities primarily uh, around the, the country. And putting those in was challenging, but in the early days of Ethernet, the rules about installing the networks were very rigid and nobody knew them. So I happened to know them because I worked at a startup that did this. And so we could go in and put in a network that complied with the way it needed to be done and so the electricians couldn't. And then once we started putting networks in and I hired outside people at new fire codes and that kind of stuff as contractors to help, but I watched the installations go, we didn't know if the networks worked or not because there was no test equipment. So then we started building 
and designing test equipment for networks. And then we were, there was the actual electronics that went on the network, and those were black boxes. You couldn't tell if those worked or not. So we took some of our test equipment knowledge and put it into the boxes and started building the boxes that went on the networks. And then we started building software around those boxes. So we were the only ones that could do diagnostic testing on a network. We were the only ones that had a product that did diagnostic testing. And we were the only ones that put software on it to do it. And we did it all, no venture capital, no outside investors, all through bank debt. So uh, on receivables and inventory. And did you lower the, the lead time on cables? Well, yeah. So we our first claim to fame was cables in 24 to 48 hours. 24 from six months. From six months. So yeah, but that was not going to last forever. That competitive advantage. It was great (laughs) in a small market with not a lot of demand. But like, how long did you kind of have that? We uh, did cables. We never stopped doing cables, but it became a lot less important part of the business, much smaller portion of the business. But we never stopped doing it. And so you mentioned that you uh, needed to take on, or you thought about taking on capital. At at what point did that happen? Well, nobody was going to give a (laughs) twenty-seven-year-old with a cable business in a garage, any money. So we were never in the market for equity. Uh, even if there was nobody was going to give us money. So we had to go to bank debt, which Bob and I signed for personally. So and if we went, if we failed. Was we it the money to... back to the bank? <laughs> was it easy to do? No, it wasn't easy to do. We had to be monthly statements to the bank about forecasts, about actual results, Cash flow, sales, everything else had to line up, and and it was um, a pretty grueling exercise to be with the banks. Just going back a bit, how did you actually do, how did your business model work? Bob would drive drive the cable up to me. We lived about an hour apart, or I'd go down to his garage and we'd do it there, and i just put the connectors on it, spool it out to the right length, and then uh, ship it off to the customer. How much did like a typical cable cost? The first cable we sold cost us four dollars a foot to buy. We had to buy ten thousand feet of it, so forty thousand, and we sold it for ten dollars a foot for a thousand feet. So ten thousand was our first sale, and um, we owed still thirty thousand on the cable beyond what we took in to to pay back the manufacturer. But consider it was only the first time we had ever sold it. We didn't know if we had any more customers or not. So, and we're pretty sure we didn't have thirty thousand in cash to give up. So, and were you just knocking on doors to get these yep. customers? So what we would do is, is phone sales to call large companies that we knew were engineering based and probably putting networks in place. This cable was also a specialty type of cable. It went. Uh, it was fire retardant cable. And it was becoming the standard um, through buildings because fire-resistant, fire-retardant cable uh, doesn't smoke and get caught up in the air returns and spread throughout a building. So um, fire codes were changing so that this type of cable went in the ceiling so that it wouldn't kill somebody if there was a fire in the building. So there was a change then, too. So you, you sold it? On the safety as well. Well, as we the, didn't have to sell on the safety. The, the codes were the codes. So, okay, if you have to put in a fire retardant cable, then you have to put in a fire retardant. Cable. Okay, sure. These cables initially were so short, so you'd put them between a couple terminals in a room, so you didn't have to go up in the ceiling. It's only once they started to get a little bit more broad in their exposure to many different people, they wanted them up in the ceiling. That's when the fire code thing started to pop up. 
because it, in the beginning, you could lay a regular wire on the table, just like an electric wire. Um, those are not fire retardant, and um, and nobody would care. But once you start putting them up in the ceiling, that's when people care. I see, I see. So you're what? kind of rate was your business growing at? I guess you started full-time in 85, you said? Yeah. So I started probably the beginning of 85. And we were probably doing about 300,000 or so at that point in time. And then what was like the next year? I don't remember the number specifically, but it was probably like three, five million, 10 million, 26 million... So and just, then 50 some, 55 million, 105 million, and then 230-ish. Okay. And so then kept going from there. So it was, it was just exploding. What, what did it feel like for, for you? Like, how was, like, how are you managing this? Because you went from, you know, working in an office Maybe you had a couple people working with you or under you. Well, my the, my largest management was at Teradyne, which was that, probably at thirty five working for me. Okay. So um, as as you know, we got seven thousand employees, so I had a lot more people working for me, but at at Cabletron, uh, and they were around the world. So there was I, we had people in probably close to a hundred countries. Um, so a little different experience. Um, but again, I took back the negative stories from these places I worked at and tried not to replicate them in my new environment. So we ran the company way different than any place I had ever worked at before. Did you feel like you could, you were ever overwhelmed with that or, or uh, how did you deal with that scale? Um, I guess I never felt overwhelmed, but I felt, you know, it's a big responsibility and you want to do stuff right. And I had quirky rules about how we worked and what we did and how we took care of our customers. And um, But they were trying to give everybody a fair chance to, to be successful on their own and to feel good about what they did every single day. So I, I'll give you a couple simple examples. We didn't have an organizational chart. I didn't like them. Because whoever does an org chart usually puts their name at the top of the page and then draws all the boxes that are below them. So I do not like that because I do not believe that somebody's more important than somebody else, but that's what an org chart looks like to me. And so if I don't, I think everybody's the same. I don't care what your job is, just everybody do what you need to do. And everybody's required to make this thing work. So... Nobody's job is more important or less important than anybody else's. Or how does and how did that like play out on a day to day? Well, this was just our culture. This is what we did. I didn't have titles. I no vice presidents. Um, didn't like that either. Again, because I saw org charts and vice presidents at other companies, and to me, vice presidents didn't do anything, and org charts were a caste system of sorts. In that, I'm more important than you. It's like, what is this? We're a team. And, you know, my management style is one of walking around and my other management style is one that I'll do whatever needs to be done and I expect you to do the same thing. So we've got to clean the men's room. Let's go clean the men's room. Sure. And so just do it. And so everybody at Cabletron felt that 
they were empowered, but they also felt that whatever they were asked to do, everybody had to do the exact same thing, and nobody was exempt from being, you know, better than anybody else, if you will. Mm-hmm. Every entrepreneur starts somewhere. Are you looking for your beginning? The Blank Center for Entrepreneurship is where Babson's emerging entrepreneurs connect with the events, workshops, mentoring, and competitions that they need to build their businesses. This spring, the Blank Center will present its new venture competition, the Beta Challenge, which recognizes Babson businesses for taking action. Join the Babson community on Thursday, April 11th at the Beta Challenge finale and watch the top alumni and student teams compete for more than $200,000 in cash and prizes. To learn more, please visit www.babson.edu slash beta challenge. You first connected with your business partner, Robert uh, Levine, yeah. back in 83. Uh, I probably it? knew Bob in 81. In 81. Bob, Bob was a salesman for a cable company. And again, I was buying parts and stuff from Interland. And he paid a sales call on me and he gave me a paperclip holder with my address on it as his address. We both lived in the same apartment complex, uh-huh. about 45 minutes from where my office was. So I said, wow, you live where I live. So we just started hitting it off and talking. And then over, you know, I'd see him occasionally socially. And, um, and then this opportunity for the cable came along and that's that was that with uh, Bob did you get on well throughout your business um, or were there different phases where you you know you hate each other to no, guts I had and- the best partner in the world and we're totally different but I had the best partner in the world it wouldn't have worked if we weren't like it, it was awesome I've seen too many businesses where the partners or whatever fight and then the whole business turns into focusing on the fights and not focusing on the customers. Bob and I are from two different backgrounds. We see the world in completely different ways but we both respected each other and we had a, a two yes policy which is if we both agree to do something let's do it. If one of us thinks we shouldn't do it then it's off the table and decisions in 24 to 48 hours just like the cable and um we got to move on and we don't bring it back up again. If we've nixed it, it's next. And if it says yes, we're moving forward with it. That's, that's the end of that. So it was quick. Um, we spent a lot of time talking. Uh, we'd commute to work together. Bob used to say it was so that I could avoid paying for the tolls and the gas. That could be partially true, but uh, we had the same office for a long time. And then when we did finally got our own offices, they always had adjoining doors that were left open so he could hear what I was doing and I could hear what he was doing if we were both in town at the same time. Bob was, Bob's terrific. Looking back, uh, any were there any things that you would like to do, like do over again with your business that would have made it even better? Listen, I think we had a pretty good ride. Yeah. And there's a lot of things I would have done differently, um, but I don't think in a major way. I mean, we internet we went international um, because we were using distributors overseas who were doing a poor job for us. So we decided that let's go set up a subsidiary in the UK, um, got on a plane, and then a week later we had employees, we had a subsidiary, we were legal, everything else. We said, how, how hard is this? <laughs> and it turned out the UK 
office kicked ass and we're bringing up sales like there was no tomorrow. So we said, oh, let's do it again in Germany. So this time we didn't do so good in Germany. We hired a guy who apparently had a pretty significant drug problem and we gave him the title of Geschäftsführer, which in, we didn't understand what that meant, but he asked for it. Well, Geschäftsführer means he needs nobody's permission to do anything. He can do whatever he wanted. <laughs> he rented a 25,000 square foot office space and it was only him and one other person. And he ended up bringing all his friends and everything else and we couldn't fire him. We had to figure out a way to get him out of there because he was Geschäftsführer. We couldn't oh, fire no. him. So, so certainly being a little bit more proactive on the differences in an international law and so would have done us well. On, on the other hand, we did so great in the UK, getting it going and having it go. What's the downside? So we found out there is a downside, so we had to be a little more careful. So that's the story of, of um, some getting a little too full of yourself and, and not paying attention to the details. When you first got into it, what did a successful outcome look like? like to you versus what we were hoping to do three million dollars in sales in one year and you hit that your second year well and we got to 1.6 billion so yeah an incredible so leap yeah we uh we did a little better than we thought we were. <laughs> when you went um public how how did you figure out how to do that um we didn't know how to do it. We didn't have a board of directors, and we had to figure it out on our own. So I called the front desk at Merrill Lynch, who was a customer of ours, and asked to put them through to somebody who knew how to take us public, and they didn't know what I was talking about, and I had to ask three times. And finally, I got bounced around inside of Merrill Lynch until I got to somebody that could help me out. And then we started to learn on our own what needed to be done and what needed not to be done, and we figured it out. We, we, at the time, had the biggest tech IPO ever. Um, and that was just through trial and error. So you just straight up called, called the through. The receptionist at Merrill Lynch. So norm- the normally main, probably, The main number. Probably. You hit zero to get the out <laughs> That's zero. who I hit. I hit the zero. <laughs> she had no idea. No idea. Looking forward, what, what uh, you know, you, you've been um, the, the governor of New Hampshire now and... Uh, uh, what are you What are you working on now? So I'm involved, as you know, at Babson. I'm on the trustees. I also teach here, um, which I'm happy to do with my good friend Julian Lang. I have some other business interests. Um, I'm on the board of a public company called Planet Fitness. Um, I also have some franchising going on with Planet Fitness, and I have a software company in Rochester, New Hampshire, which is in one of my old buildings, as it turns out. Um, that uh, is also takes some of my time. Thanks for listening to this week's Babson Built, where we showcase Babson entrepreneurs and founders. If you have a second, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. We take feedback seriously here at Babson Built, and it helps other listeners find us. If you know a Babson entrepreneur who should be featured, email us at babsonbuilt at gmail.com.